If you have your Bibles, then go ahead and grab them. Uh, We are going to be actually in the book of Philippians this morning. So we're going to do a complete curveball from what is listed in the the worship folder. We'll be in Philippians chapter 3 and going to be looking at verses 2 through 11. So Philippians chapter 3 verses 2 through 11 this morning. I'm very uh, excited to have the opportunity to preach this morning and getting to share uh, what I believe to be one of the, the most critical texts for American Christianity uh, to grasp. This is one text that uh, we will see, I think, is, is very important for us to, to understand, not only cognitively, but to, to grab a hold of for our lives. You see, I have this, this conviction uh, that I believe to be based upon a, a pretty accurate perception of the world. Namely, that what you are passionate about will determine how you spend your time and your money. Right? So what you are passionate about will indicate where you spend your energy. And hopefully, uh, the students by now understand this Reality, because over the last few weeks, really since I've uh, been here, been a part of this church, we've been going through these these four kind of central pillars that I want to to build the entire student ministry around. All right, so I've been drilling them uh, with these four central ideas over and over again for the past few weeks. Those four pillars are a passion for Christ, a passion for His Word, a passion for others, and a passion for the nations. So these are the four central tenets that I want to, to, to build out of this student ministry. So every teaching series that we go through, every event that we put on, every trip that we go on, I want to be built around these four central ideas. I want it all to be driven by these four central passions. And I chose the word passion very specifically. Right, you see, I, I don't want these students to be, to be satisfied with a superficial relationship with Christ or with His Word or a superficial love for others or desire for the nations. I want them to be passionate about Christ. I want them to be passionate about knowing His Word. I want them to be passionate about loving those around them. And I want them to be passionate about taking the gospel to those who have never heard. Because I have this conviction that if they are passionate about Christ, about His Word, about others, about the nations, then that will drive how they actually live. But oftentimes for, for us, our passions tend to not be so, so weighty. And that's not necessarily uh, a bad thing, right? I mean, especially uh, I've learned quickly in this congregation that some of us, uh, it's either the Virginia Cavaliers or the Virginia Tech Hokies that tend to be uh, our passions, right? That uh, you can see that, that that's the way we, we spend our time, our energy, our money on apparel, on going to games. And this isn't necessarily, again, a bad thing, 
Uh, but I do think it can become an issue when you're so emotionally attached that your day gets ruined by how well a bunch of 20-somethings run up and down a field or up and down a court. All right, I think that can be an issue. But overall, it's not a bad thing. For others, our passion may be our job. It may be your car. You're just passionate about that car you've saved up for, you've worked for, you've worked on. Right? It might be your family. It might be anything else you want to fill in the blank with. But again, these, these, these aren't bad things. They're not bad things for us. And I, I don't want you to hear me saying that these are. But what we're going to see from the text this morning is Paul saying this needs to be our central passion. That Christ is to be our central passion. Not only because He's our Savior, not only because He is our Lord, but because He is better. The Apostle Paul packs into this paragraph. It's kind of a long paragraph, but it's still a paragraph nonetheless. Uh, He packs quite a bit into it. And his main thesis, what he wants to get across for us, is he wants us to, to see, to understand, to grasp the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. That Jesus has more value than anything else this world has to offer. And not, and not just a little bit more value, but the surpassing value. That it's not even close. So much so that when we compare him to everything else, to our job, to our sports team, to our car, to our hobby. That's an easy decision on who we are going to choose and who we are going to live our lives based on. So the main point I want to get across this morning, if you're taking notes, here's my main point that I want to argue for. It's that our greatest gain in life is found in faith in Christ. So our greatest gain, what we are to desire more than anything else and be passionate about is found in knowing and loving Jesus Christ and living by faith in Him. So that's my main point this morning. So hopefully by now you're in Philippians chapter 3. Again, we're going to be in verses 2 through 11. I'm going to... To read out, uh, go ahead. Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 through 11 says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law 
but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Father, this is Your Word. Help me to to present it clearly. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds to what it is that you have to say to us. Give us a passion for Christ. Christ is more valuable. There's more worth in Christ than anything else this world has to offer. Help us to choose wisely. Help us to desire Christ. Help us to love Christ. Give us a passion. Father, we need you for that. We very much need you for that. So I pray that you would move for the glory of your name this morning. And it's for your beautiful name that I pray. Amen. All right, so Paul begins this section, right? He begins with a warning to his readers. Do you see that? He tells them to to look out, to watch out for this particular people. Namely, uh, the false teachers who are trying to sway this church. All right, now who are these people specifically? He describes them in three separate ways, doesn't he? Look down, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, and look out for those who mutilate the flesh. All right, now keep in mind that when he uses the term dog here, he's not using it affectionately like he's got a pet at home that we all love and cherish, right? He's not talking about your your pet that runs up and jumps on you and licks you to death, right, that you love man's best friend. No, he's not talking about false teachers as if they're pets. He's talking about them as, as dogs, as unclean, as ferocious, not to be dealt with animals. All right, these, these animals are unclean. They have their teeth bared. They are ready to inflict damage on those who they get close to. Watch out for them. All right, Jews oftentimes referred to Gentiles as dogs. All right, it was a demeaning term. Watch out for these people so that they do not tear into you. Look out for the evildoers. They not only do evil themselves, but they actually actively try to persuade others to join them in their evil doing. That's what false teachers are doing. They don't understand, oftentimes, that they're teaching falsely, and so they're claiming this is the truth, this is reality, come join me. And Paul's saying, no, that's evil, don't join in with them. They are evil doers. They are not to be trusted, but are to be guarded against. They are mutilators of the flesh. Now, this is the characteristic. This is the one phrase that, that stands out, that kind of gives us a little hint of who he's talking about in this regard. Those who mutilate the flesh. They are the, the false teachers. There's always always false teachers within the church, especially early on and even to today. But one particular group that kind of always caused the Apostle Paul uh, a great deal of difficulty were, were those known as the Judaizers. All right, you, you read about them often in the New Testament. They are the ones who believed and taught that one an individual had to be circumcised in order to become a Christian. All right, so if a Gentile wanted to believe in Christ, he first had to become a Jew, and then when he, once he's a Jew, 
he can then become a Christian. All right, and so he refers to them as a mutilator of the flesh because of circumcision. This is an outward sign. And you can read the New Testament. Paul often preaches against this, really, and we're going to see it. He, he pits them against each other as if, if you're striving to keep the law and accepting circumcision as a prerequisite for salvation, then you are dead set against the gospel. Paul does not mince words but with, uh, with this group, but rather warns the believers to be on the lookout for them and to deal with them swiftly. You see that it is the very gospel message at stake in these moments. And it's, it's even similar for us today. We often, at least I don't, uh, I don't hear of any false teachers on TV claiming that I need to be circumcised if I want to become a Christian, right? That's not as common, that's not as prevalent. But I have heard of people saying, you can't come to church until you clean yourself up. You need to make sure that you stop all this drinking, stop all this smoking, stop all this cussing. You can't come to church with those types of clothes on as if that's a prerequisite to come to faith in Christ. So we're really not that far from what Paul is dealing with. Ours just looks a little bit differently. It is an addition to the gospel. You have to do X, Y, or Z, and then... You can come to Christ. These are not just cultural issues of the right appearance to come to church. To a, a, a type of morality. All right, there's, there's a group of people we don't want within the church walls because they're not like us. Right, that, that's not just a cultural issue. That is a gospel issue. And Paul deals with it very seriously. Because as soon as you add or subtract to the gospel at all, you've completely emptied it of all of its power. And Paul, again, does not take this lightly. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, listen to this, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul says if anyone adds to the gospel, whether it's circumcision, whether it's a sense of morality, you've got to clean yourself up first. Any addition, any subtraction to the gospel at all, let him be under the curse of God. Literally, let him be damned to hell eternally. Because that's not the gospel. Because if salvation is found only in Christ, in his sinless life, in his substitutionary death, and in his resurrection, then any addition or subtraction, again, empties it of his power so that what people what you are calling people to is not salvation. You see why he is he's so emphatic about keeping the gospel pure? It's because there's salvation in nowhere else but in the true undiluted gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he does not take lightly those who would obscure the gospel. And that, that becomes all the more clear as he continues. Look at verse 3. 
For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He says that, uh, he says that those who worship by the Spirit, right, namely those who have been regenerated, those who are believers in Christ, who have put their faith in His person, in His work, what He has accomplished, those are the ones who are the true circumcision. Again, circumcision is a sign of the covenant relationship with God. So when he's saying we are the true circumcision, he's saying we are the true people of God. Who what? Who have their faith in Christ and glory only in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. These two groups are mutually exclusive. Either you put your confidence in the flesh, in what you have done, or you don't. And your faith is solely in Christ. There's no middle ground. The true people of God are only those who put their faith in Christ. And do not attempt to earn it, because they know they cannot. No sense of morality, no church attendance, no whatever you want to fill in the blank, will ever earn God's favor. It's solely faith in Christ. But look how he continues. He, be, he begins to list out his resume, right, as if he's in a competition with these people. All right, do you see that? Look at verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's, he's basically challenging them, right? If you think you have reason to have confidence in what you have done and who you are, then try me. I guarantee I have more going for me than you do. He's saying, you think you are good enough, step up to the plate because I guarantee you I will put you in your place. But look what he, he says. He's, he's going to beat them at their own game. Look at the list. The first four deal with what he received from his birth, right? Has nothing to do with with what he's done, but solely based on on who he is by birthright. And then the second set uh, are are three that are all centered on his own efforts. So he's covering all ground here. He's covering all ground. Are they better than him because they have been born into a better family, a better state before God? Not at all. Right? He was circumcised on the eighth day like any good Jewish boy was supposed to, right? So check that one off. And he's of the people of Israel. He's part of God's people. So we'll check that one off the list. And and he he not only knows that he's a Jew in a broad sense, he actually knows what tribe he's from. Right In a day where they've been exiled several times and then they've been conquered by seemingly everybody under the sun, right? he can still trace his lineage back. 
In fact, he may even be named for the original king of Israel, right? He's Saul. And then later on, he, he kind of shifts his name to, to Paul. But he can trace his heritage back to the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And we can easily scoff at this, but how many of us know an individual who believes that they're a Christian simply because they're an American? Or they're a good old southern boy, born and raised in the Bible Belt, have no love or desire for Jesus, but daggone it, they're a Christian. We're not that far off. We are not that far away. But look at the next set. These are things that he has accomplished. And to be honest, they're, they're quite impressive, right? right he was a, a Pharisee, which, I mean, if you read the Gospels, tend to get a very bad rap, but these are the religious elite. Right? These are the guys who spent their life studying the law and trying to live it out. Now, when Jesus shows up, they often miss the point. Right? They, they fail to see Jesus in front of them. But they are some of the most holy people, one of the strictest sects of Judaism. And he is a part of it. He had memorized, more than likely, books of the Bible that we often don't even like to read. <laughs> right? We're going through our daily reading now with the staff, and we're starting to get into uh, the, uh, the measurements for the tabernacle and the the altar, and this needs to be this long and this tall and all of this stuff. Like He had that memorized, and I'm just trying to get through it. I'll just be honest, right? It's not that engaging for us. But that was his love. That was his desire as a Pharisee to know the law. And not only was he so uh, passionate that he was a Pharisee, right? But look at verse 6, as to zeal a persecutor of the church. So zealous was he for Judaism that anybody or anything that stood up in opposition, he was ready to take on. So when the church arises, he doesn't see this as the Messiah has come. This is the true people of God. We need to recognize our Messiah, but he sees it as a threat and he seeks to oppose it, right? He persecutes the early church. He is so zealous that he is willing to have others killed, right? To go and with the intention of bringing them back in chains to face trial, right? He is that zealous for Judaism. And he did it all honestly with a clear conscience, right? He believed what he was doing was right. But look at the last one. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, this is not Paul saying that I'm sinless. All right? he, he still had that original sin, that inward sin that he was dealing with. But he's saying outwardly, in conformity to living according to the law, you would find no fault in me. I was blameless in my living according to the law. If anyone was going to be saved, if anyone had a right to boast in the flesh, it was Paul. It was Paul. And for us, again, this may appear differently. 
that's still the same. We think that our attendance at church, the fact that we are on every committee under the sun, right, that we are good, moral, upstanding citizens, never hurt anyone, we come to church and we pay our, uh, we pay our tithe. Surely we are Christians. Surely if anybody is, we are. But then Paul shifts the focus for us. He goes away from anything in us and places the emphasis wholly in Christ. Look what he says. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. All of that good stuff, all of his effort, all of his birthright, now considered a loss. Not just neutral, not just less important than they were, but as a loss. Why? Why? Because of the sake of Christ and knowing the surpassing worth of Christ. The joy, the love, the assurance, the grace, the mercy, the majesty, and holiness that is found in Christ is worth far more than anything else we could have or gain in this world. When you get a sight of Christ in His glory and in His splendor, you see not only that your only hope is in Christ, but that your greatest gain in life is in Him. That He is what our heart truly desires. Right, so the, the things on Paul's list are not bad things. Well, maybe persecutor of the church, that, that's not great, right? But he's blameless under the law. That's not a bad thing. That he is a, a Jew by birthright. That's, that's not a bad thing. And it's not a bad thing for us to be moral citizens. To come to church. But we can, when we compare what we have done to the supremacy of Christ. We see how far they fall short. We cannot live for lesser satisfactions in our life, to desire lesser passions when we can know and love Christ. Do do you see that? Do you understand that? Do you grab a hold of that? That Christ is better? If the Virginia Tech Hokies never lost another game, won every title imaginable under the sun, would that actually matter in eternity? Our passion should be on Christ, not only because He is our Savior and our Lord, that He gave His life in our place, but listen, because He is better. He is more to be desired. There is more joy in Him than in anything else. 
This world will leave us hungry, but Jesus is the one that can satisfy our deepest longings. But on the other, uh, other side of this, do you understand that uh, if you were to get everything your, your fleshly heart wanted, if you were to get that job, that house, be able to go anywhere you wanted, whenever you wanted, have that beach house, nothing but beautiful sunset, all the toys that you could want, that your life was perfect, but you didn't have Jesus, you would lose. That that would be a loss compared to Christ. Look what he says. He continues. For his sake, for Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Compared to Christ, Everything else, every other good thing is rubbish. It is garbage. But why, why does he count it as such? Why does he see all these good things as, as rubbish? Look what he says. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul is living out. Christ's words in Luke 14, 26, which says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This text often makes us squirm a bit, doesn't it? But it doesn't for, for Paul. He shows us that every good thing, if he were to, to divide his life into two columns, all the good things he has going for him, on one side, and then Christ on the other. He says these are rubbish. These are garbage because Christ is that much better. He's that much more to be desired. Our greatest loves, our greatest joys are nothing compared to knowing Christ. Again, Paul Paul believes Jesus when he says in John 17, verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So in knowing Christ, having Christ, being found in Him, we have what? We have eternal life. In knowing Christ. And how is, how is this attained though? How does one have Christ? Right, That's a key question. Answer by faith. Exactly what he described at the beginning. Right, Our right standing before God comes as a result of faith in Christ. It's believing in Him, a trusting in Him, what He has done on our behalf and not on our own efforts. For some of us, we need to hear the fact that no matter how much we've done, we think I am too far gone, that Christ still saves if you are willing to believe. 
that you have not gone too far for the grace of God. For others of us, we need to grapple with the fact that no matter how many good things you do, you cannot earn Christ's salvation. But it is freely given to those who will believe, who put their faith in Him. Our righteousness, our right standing before God depends on faith. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. But then Paul gives his ultimate goal, right? He continues on, verse 10. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The goal is to know Him. To, to treasure Him above anything else on earth so that in eternity, what we have treasured most is what we gain. That's why Paul can say in Philippians 1, 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. When his life is so wrapped up in knowing Christ, making Him known, loving Him, death is, is not a loss. It's an infinite gain because that which, that which he treasured most is now what he gets to possess in full for eternity. On earth he sees through a glass dimly. In heaven with Christ he sees clearly. And he's willing to endure whatever it takes willing to share in the sufferings of Christ if that meant that he would also share in his resurrection. This is true faith in Christ living out, being lived out. Do I need to to suffer for Christ? That's fine, because I get Christ. Do I need to die for the sake of Christ? That's fine, because I get Christ. His passion was for Christ. He saw him as the highest good imaginable. Worth far more than anything else that this world has to offer. He was the treasure that was worth selling all to possess. He is the pearl of great value. His goal was Christ. Because he understood that the greatest gain for him was found only in faith in Christ and living in obedience to Him. And so for us, we need, we need to take an honest look at our hearts and ask what our passions truly are. What are you passionate about? Are we caught up in a lot of good things? Again, they're not bad things to be supportive of a school or a team or to enjoy your job or your hobby. Those aren't bad things. But are they so far subservient to Christ that you would give them up in an instant if it meant that I gained Christ? I plead with you, weigh it all out. I believe fully that if you were to weigh out everything this world has to offer and then Christ on the other side, Christ is better. That the surpassing Worth is in Christ. So we don't need to spend our energy on that which will not 
satisfied. We need to put our faith in Christ. Know the joy, the love that comes from Christ. Because only He can satisfy. He is better. He is of surpassing value. And we need to live that out individually and as a church today. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, I thank you for uh, your word, for this opportunity to, to read your word, to sit under your word. And I pray that our passion would be, would be you, that you would be our desire. You would be what we want most because only you will truly satisfy. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to see what our passions really are and that you would give us clarity so that we could wholeheartedly pursue you because you are better. We need you. We love you. It's for your beautiful name I pray. Amen.